May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. There's a place in France called Taizé. Taizé. It's in the Burgundy region of France. Taizé. It's the home of an ecumenical monastery, a monastery of Christians who are not bound by any particular denomination. Uh, Taizé started in the year 1940 by a man who went by uh, the name Brother Roger. He had grown sort of disillusioned with the church of the 1930s. He saw the, the rise of fascism across Europe, and he wanted to seek out a new, simpler way of Christian living, of Christian loving. And so he bought a property in this Burgundy region of France in Taizé, and he invited other like-minded Christians to come and to join him, to sort of experience this new and yet radical way uh, of having a Christian witness. And without really expecting it to happen, they were thrust into a radical witness of Christianity because shortly thereafter, I think most of you are aware of what happened in France. And the monastery, this sort of humble farmhouse that they had, became a refuge for refugees who were fleeing uh, spots of war that were popping up all over France. Hundreds of people made their way through this place with Brother Roger, and after the Second World War, word of him began to spread across Europe about this man who had a simple Christian witness, and people wanted to come learn more. And they did. More and more people came throughout the 20th century to the point that it is now, Taizé, one of the most important sites of Christian pilgrimage in the whole world, particularly for young people. Every year, 100,000 young Christians between the ages of 18 and 35 go to Taizé. 100,000 young Christians go every single year because they want to get a taste, they want to catch a glimpse of this community that started in 1940. I went... When I was still a young person, that's supposed to be a joke. <laughs> I'm about to age out of the young category. I'm 35 years old. Next year, I'm not a young person anymore. Can't wait to be an old person. It's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. Retirement is just on the horizon. <laughs> so I, I went 14 years ago. I was 21. And I had read about Taizé. I had heard about Taizé. And I... I, I shared about it with some of my friends who were also in college, and we took our own pilgrimage one summer. We decided we are going to go see what this whole thing is about. And the, the conceit now is young people go for about a week at a time, and you bring tents. You sleep out in the, these rolling hills in Burgundy, France, which usually are filled with vines and vineyards, and you camp out every night and have this sanctuary that can fit 6,000 people. And you gather together three times a day for the singing of hymns and for prayer. You have Bible study, simple meals, and you do kind of projects together. And so we decided we were going to go to Taizé, France. And getting there was no easy feat. Because we had to fly into Paris. And then once we arrived in Paris, we had, at Charles de Gaulle, we had to take a bus from Charles de Gaulle to the train station in the heart of Paris. Then from the train station, we had to get the right train that would take us to Macon, France. And then once we got there, we had to find the right bus that it would take us from Macon to Taizé. And only one of us spoke French. And had taken like three years of high school French. Now, we had some conversational Germans among us. We had two who could read and write in Latin. That didn't do us any good. 
And somehow we made it, and it was difficult. I remember a moment when uh, a friend of mine named Jason was trying to say on uh, the, on the uh, train we were taking to Macon, I need to use the toilet. But what he said in French was, I need to drive your toilet. <laughs> you can imagine the face of the woman uh, who heard that request. I need to drive your toilet. We eventually arrived. But even when we got there, even when we got to Taizé, everything was lost in translation. Again, there were about 10 of us young Americans who had lived our whole lives thinking we were the center of the universe. And all of a sudden, we're in these rolling sort of farmland country in France, and no one else can speak English except for us. So we can't find where the bathrooms are. We don't know where to get in line for food. We don't even know what time worship is supposed to start those three different times during the day. And we truly, most of us for the first time, felt like strangers in a strange land. It was actually rather difficult, especially when we were supposed to break out. Uh, we were in a group where we were supposed to be talking about the, uh, the, the epistle to the Romans. It's very hard to talk about scripture when no one speaks the same language. But on our first night, we gathered in this sanctuary, and it's an odd sanctuary. It's very, very long, and there are no chairs. Everyone sits on the floor. There were about 3,500 people there that week, all under the age of 35. And at the front of the altar, there's an LED screen, and all they would do is put up a number, because when you walked in, there were these milk carton crates of hymnals, and every hymnal was in a different language. And so you pick your language, you go sit down, and they would put a number up on the screen, and everyone would flip to that number, and one person would start to sing, and then 3,500 people would join together. No instruments. No one said, all right, we're going to do hymn number 57, we're going to do one ver verses 1 through 4, we're going to do it three times, and then we're going to stop and sit down and do the rest of worship. It was just... This is the number. And the first song that came up, I don't remember the number, but I remember the, the song. It was Ubi Caritas. Ubi Caritas et Amor. Ubi Caritas Deus Ibiest. Ubi Caritas et Amor. Ubi Caritas Deus Ibiest. It's a Latin chant from the 8th century. It means live in charity and steadfast love. Live in charity and God will dwell with you. So one person started the song and then 3,500 people came together. And you can imagine, or perhaps you can't, but I was there. 3,500 people singing and everyone were singing in Latin. I don't know Latin. But after we got through it about five or six times, I noticed that there was a group of people to my right. They were all from Germany, and they weren't singing in Latin anymore. They were singing in German. And there was a group in front of me, and they were from Italy, and they started singing in Italian. And there was a group to the, uh, to the left of me, and they were singing in French. And my group, we started to sing it in English. And you know what it sounded like? It didn't sound like voices singing a song. It sounded like the sound of a rush of a mighty wind. It sounded like Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, everyone is together in Jerusalem. That's what scriptures say. That's what Luke says in the book of Acts. Everyone is there. They're all gathered together. It's this festival to celebrate the giving of the law to the people of Israel. They're all together. And it's while they're there, people from all over the globe, all these representatives from nations, that the Spirit is poured out on all flesh. I hope you heard that list of countries, those places I was reading, it's names that we don't usually hear about. 
It's the roll call of nations. It's the fear of every liturgist that's ever had to stand up and read scripture on Pentecost. You don't want to have to read. That's why I took, the, I, I took it today. I took the short straw. I was going to read the names. It's a strange list of names. They say, how is it? The spirits pour down on the disciples. They tumble out of this house. They're drunk on the spirit. They're speaking in other languages. They say, how can we understand them? Because we're Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, Rome, Cretans, Arabs. How can we understand? This story has often been paired with the story of Babel. Genesis chapter 10. We, we all have one language, humanity, and we decide with our, with our unified forces we're going to build a tower because we want to be God. We want to get up to God in the sky. And, and God responds by confusing our language. Makes us go from having one language to many languages so that we can never do something like that again. So Pentecost is the reversal. Some might say the redemption. It's how God writes the wrong of what we did. But I think there's even more to it than that. It's a strange gathering. Again, people from all over. And it's not just an impressive collection. It's also an impossible collection. It's impossible because the Medes, the, the first people listed, it would have been hard enough for them to get to Jerusalem on Pentecost because they were from Mesopotamia, a couple hundred miles away. But it also would have been really hard for them to get there because they, as a people, had gone extinct 200 years before the day of Pentecost. Their entire line had run out. And the Elamites, the second group, they're mentioned one time in the book of Ezra and they're never mentioned again. They are lost to the sands of time as well. So Pentecost, it's not just a gathering of people from the north and the south and the east and the west. It's a gathering of the living and the dead. So why? Why does God give the disciples the ability to speak all these languages and in particular to some people who no longer exist. It's because the Spirit of God is wild. The Spirit of God is like the wind. She blows wherever she wants. She claims whoever she wants. When Peter gets up in a little while, he begins to address the crowd. He says, it's just like from the prophet Joel. God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. In Scripture, when God says all God really means all. It's just not, not just for the people who speak the right languages, who lived in the right places and knew the right people. The Spirit of God is poured out for all people in all places and all times. It's Luke's way of saying, oddly enough, that we were all there on the day of Pentecost. Not just the people from the past and the present, but evil, even the people from the future. God poured out God's Spirit on all flesh. And notice, God doesn't give us just one new language to speak. We're not going back to Babel. It's not like we all learned Esperanto on the day of Pentecost. It's different. God pours out the Spirit so that we can speak all languages together. It's that the grammar of faith transcends all languages. It's the beginning of a revolution we call the church. It's important, I think, to know that this is all God's doing no one helped, no one assisted, but strangely, it's an answer to prayer. The last we read of the disciples, Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God the Father, and what do they do first? They begin to pray. The next detail we read is that the Spirit arrives. The Spirit is the answer to their prayer. Now, is this what they prayed for? I doubt it. But it's what God gave. 
God poured out the Spirit that they might be able to speak in a variety of languages. So let that be a reminder to you that whenever you pray for God's will to be done, it's the most faithful and wild thing you can ever do. Because you never know how God is going to answer your prayer. The disciples, through the power of the Spirit, they're now connected to people in the most intimate way possible through voice and memory and sound and place. It's language that runs through all of these things. Language is the connective tissue of a people. To speak a language is to, in fact, speak a people. Have you ever tried to learn a different language? It's tremendously difficult. Very, very hard. Particularly if English is your first language, because our language is so messed up. It doesn't follow any of the right grammar rules. To learn a new language is so hard. It requires a submission, a change, a transformation on behalf of the learner. And it's never just about words and grammar. Because to learn a language includes learning things like customs and hopes and dreams and foods and fears and songs, quite literally everything. If you want to learn a language, you wind up learning a people. In my house, we grew up hearing German. My father was born in Germany. He came permanently to the U.S. for high school. And so as a child, I grew up hearing all of my relatives speaking what sounded like a secret code to each other. Whenever they wanted to gossip about other people in the family, they spoke German so the kids couldn't understand. By the way, a very good way to encourage a child to learn a foreign language, I wanted to learn, not because I wanted to know German, but because I wanted to know the family secrets. So I picked up bits and bobs of German as a young person. I took it in high school, I took it in college, and I remember very distinctly feeling like I had actually truly learned the language when I started to dream in German. If you've ever learned a language before, when you start to dream in that language, it means you've probably done it. I also can remember one time in a class, I think it was a religion class, I, an- I raised my hand to answer a question, and I started to answer the question in German rather than English, because my brain was getting a little discombobulated. But my German is not what it once was. I've lost a lot of my German. I think because you only really learn a language when you learn the people. You can only really learn a language when you have those people to talk with. I was able to talk with my family, in particular my grandmother who died a year ago. And when she left, when other people in my family have gone, I've lost the people with which I can share the language and now I no longer have it. On the day of Pentecost, the crowds, they all say, how can we hear what they are saying? It's another version of, how do they know me? You know a language, you know a people. You fall in love with a language because you fall in love with its sounds and then its stories and, and its faces, its places. You fall in love with a people. And God speaks people fluently. God knows us better than we know ourselves. So the crowds ask another question. It's the last verse. What does this all mean? It's a question we ask all the time. What is God up to? The same spirit that is God that hovers over the waters of creation, the same spirit, the ruah, the breath of God that gives each of us life is the same spirit poured out on Pentecost. Same spirit that's present with the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus the Son. And all of that spirit together has one thing to say. It's poured out on all flesh, which means there is no one outside the realm of God's grace and mercy. All means all. 
It's what God has been saying to the people of Israel since the beginning. And now God is shouting it in every single language, both the living and the dead. God is saying, all, come together. This is what the love of neighbor actually looks like. It's called othering. You got to know other people. You got to share things with other people. You have to sing with other people. You have to weep with other people. You have to rejoice with other people. That's what the love of Jesus looks like. It's the love that Bart says goes into the far country, is willing to go across boundaries and expectations. It's the love that God has for us. It's a love that cannot be contained, it cannot be controlled, and once it's unleashed, nothing will stop it until only love remains. We're different, even here in this church, even though we might all speak the same language. We have different stories, different families. We like different music and different foods and different movies and different books. We're all different. We have different hopes and dreams, but Pentecost makes a new difference. We don't have to build a tower in the sky anymore to get to God because God has come to us. God has condescended God's self to come and be with us. And so doing, our differences make a new beloved community we call church where we can do wild and wondrous things. We can be different. We don't and we shouldn't be the same. It's our differences that make us beautiful. The Holy Spirit arrives. It means we're no longer defined by our mistakes, but only by God's grace. God overturns what happens on Babel, not by making one new language, but by creating a people who are God's new language for the world, a people called church. So listen carefully the next time we sing as a church. It might sound like a group of voices all hunting after similar notes, but maybe... If you're lucky, if you're blessed, that's not what you'll hear. Instead, you'll hear the sound of a mighty rushing wind. You might just hear Pentecost. And so I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.